Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're talking about the story of climate science and denial, concerning the federal government about the effect fossil fuels are having on the Earth's atmosphere, goes back to the days of President Lyndon Johnson. Since then, the scientific consensus about the basic facts of climate disruption have become more solid, and the opposition to those facts have become more fierce and effective. Even though accepting global warming involves an understanding of high school physics and chemistry, it has become a controversial and highly political issue. Over the next hour, we will explore how that happened and discuss how American citizens comprehend and talk about the increasingly volatile climate that is evident today in all 50 states. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us a science historian, a science educator, and a science communicator. Naomi Oreskes is professor of the history of science at Harvard and co-author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco to Global Warming. Merchants of Doubt is also an upcoming documentary. Joe Rome is founding editor of Climate Progress and author of Language Intelligence, Lessons on Persuasion from Jesus, Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Lady Gaga. And Eugenie Scott is chair of the National Center for Science Education. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, all of you. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, let's begin with you. Your book traces the roots and the history of climate denial through the Cold War, the tobacco area, to today. And one of the central figures is a physicist named Fred Seitz. Tell us the story of Fred Seitz. Well, Fred Seitz is a remarkable feature. He was a very distinguished physicist, uh, helped lay the foundations of solid-state physics after World War II, had worked on... Uh, the Manhattan Project, the hydrogen bomb, and became president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in the 1960s. So he was a scientist who worked at the very highest levels of American science and also played a very important role in serving on many high-level advisory committees to Congress, the president. But um, towards the latter part of his career, he went to work for the tobacco industry. And he ran a program for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco funding what... I've come to call distracting research, funding scientific research that wasn't fraudulent, but was designed to distract attention away from the causes of tobacco, the dangers of tobacco smoke. So, for example, they would fund research on other causes of lung cancer, the link between asbestos and lung cancer, the link between radon and lung cancer, other causes of heart disease. Uh, the role of stress in heart disease and high blood pressure. So it was legitimate research, but its purpose was to cast doubt on the links between the harms of tobacco and um, you know, the scientific evidence. Uh, he did that work 1979 to 1985, and then the place where the story gets really thick and complicated is that in 1984 he founds a think tank with a group of other physicists like himself who are also prominent physicists who have risen to positions of power and influence because of work they did in the Cold War. But when the Cold War ends, they turn their attention to climate science. 
and not just climate science, but to a whole set of environmental issues that are quite familiar to all of us, acid rain, the ozone hole, the role of pesticides in harming the environment. And they begin to challenge the scientific evidence on all of these issues. And the strategy they use is the strategy that Fred Seitz had developed, working with R.J. Reynolds, to cast doubt on the science, to claim there's no consensus, that we don't really know, and since we don't really know, it would be premature to do anything about it. And they pursued that strategy successfully for more than 20 years. And so when there's doubt, there's paralysis, and the incumbents win. Is that essentially it? Exactly. The point is in action. If there's doubt, most of us, if we feel we're not sure about something, we would think, well, we won't act until we know. So if, if the science is unsettled, then it seems logical that scientists should do more research. Uh, let's wait and see. That was a phrase that they love to use. Let's wait and see. And I always like to say, well, you know what? We have waited, and we have seen. <laughs> Joe Rome, how does that fit? I'd like to get your take on that, the narrative of the last couple of decades in terms of climate science emerging. It seems that, that the doubt, the, the questioning, has kind of had the upper hand, certainly if not won the day, certainly um, had been very persuasive. Um, well, uh, you know, as, as I think you know, uh, uh, I spent a long time studying communications, uh, the, the world's greatest communicators, and, and understanding what works and what doesn't. And I, as I said to you, if you're not you know, telling stories, you're not, you're not communicating. Um, I, I think that, um, frankly... Uh, everything I learned about communications, uh, getting PhD in physics from IT, uh, which I summarize as use big words, don't repeat yourself, and be as literal and fact-based as possible, uh, is not only not good advice, it's actually the exact opposite of literally 25 centuries of understanding of effective and persuasive Communications that was developed by the Greeks and, and uh, uh, improved upon by the, the Romans and then raised to the high art in English language by the Elizabethans who you know, created the two great works of rhetoric, the, the works of Shakespeare and the King James Bible. And there's a reason why those two books fill up a quarter of all you know, Bartlett's quotations because they wrote in the figures of speech and the figures of speech are what make things memorable. And uh, the figures of speech were just derived, uh, they're just memory tricks. They were developed uh, by the great bards who had to remember these two-hour-long epic poems. So they had all these tricks, rhyme, alliteration, irony, metaphor, uh, simile. They had 200 of them, I mean 200 different figures of speech. And uh, the Greeks codified them because the Greeks uh, switched from trial by magistrate to trial by jury. Uh, and the juries there were 500 people, and it was majority vote wins. Uh, there are no rules of evidence. The accuser spoke for 30 minutes. You spoke for 30 minutes. Whoever won the majority won. You know, I think uh, the magic secret, which isn't taught, uh, is that the key to being uh, persuasive is to be memorable. And, and modern social science basically shows the stuff that's easier for you to remember, you're more likely to believe, believe is true. Um, and so if that one fact were taught and our communications theory were based around it, all communications at every level uh, would be completely different because numbers aren't... What, what is memorable is stories. And, you know, it occurred to me uh, in writing the book and then in talking about it that the reason scientists... Scientists are anti-story, <clears throat> and... It's very easy to understand why, because the Enlightenment was about replacing a story-based explanation of the world. You know, why do rainbows occur? Is it because God was sending a message that he was not going to have a big flood again? Or is it, you know, light bouncing around in raindrops? So... Uh, what, you mean it's not God's I, It's a little bit of both. Uh, so... so um, but everybody knows and remembers, you know, the story. And so the point is that, um, you know, scientists are wary of stories. They often sound too good to be true. And, and, and the whole point is it isn't, you know, the, the, the logo of the British uh, Royal Society is uh, nullus and verbia. You know, words mean nothing. 
That's the point. Words mean nothing. But of course, in the real world, words mean everything. Joe Rome is the, uh, the founder of the, the Climate Progress blog. You're listening to Climate One. Uh, let's go to a couple of stories. We have two scientists here with us who are going to share their stories. Uh, and maybe there will be some facts in those stories. But these are very personal stories uh, of scientists who've suffered some personal attacks and in, in sharing their, their knowledge and pursuing truth. I would like to call first on Ben Santer, a climate researcher with the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Ben Santer. What does it feel like to be a U.S. climate scientist in the 21st century? It's falling off. It feels a little scary at times. I'm on Senator James Inhofe's infamous list of 17. One of 17 scientists Senator Inhofe has threatened with referral to the Justice Department from criminal prosecution. Mike is also on that list. That's concerning. I'm the target of Freedom of Information Act requests from my emails and, quote, research data, unquote. That's concerning and frustrating. I receive threatening emails from total strangers who don't like the work I do or the findings my colleagues and I have published. That, too, is concerning. Sometimes the threats are more serious and have affected my family's sense of security and well-being. That's beyond concerning. It makes me feel angry and uneasy and always watchful. All of this bad stuff is the background noise of my life. I've learned to live with this noise. The bad stuff, as I see it, is the price of doing business, the price of publishing climate fingerprint research, of doing climate science. But then there's the good stuff. Coming into work every morning and learning something new about this strange and wonderful world in which we live. What an extraordinary privilege. Being part of a community connected by a deep passion for advancing our understanding of complex scientific issues. How cool is that? And once in a while in your career, having the sense that you and you alone hold a tiny piece of the enormous climate change puzzle that nobody else in the world has. And that feeling is priceless. Now I'd like to invite Michael Mann, professor of meteorology at Penn State University and author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. Welcome, Michael Mann. Thank you. Well, I'm going to tell a story. Uh, It's a true story. I've awakened to learn that my private emails have been hacked from a research center in the UK. Various emails of mine have been cherry-picked from the thousands of stolen emails. Individual words and phrases have been taken out of context to misrepresent the content of the emails, to malign me, my colleagues, and climate research itself. Fossil fuel industry hired hands have catapulted accusatory sound bites onto the pages of leading newspapers and onto television screens around the world. A cartoon video ridiculing me is advertised through a sponsored link. The sponsor is an organization run by Steve Malloy. Malloy was once paid by tobacco interests to attack the science linking their product to lung cancer and other health ailments. Today, he is funded by fossil fuel interests to attack climate scientists like myself and like Ben. Perhaps it's just a coincidence. This is all happening only weeks in advance of the 2009 Copenhagen summit, the first opportunity for meaningful international progress in confronting the global climate change threat. Perhaps it's just a coincidence that the delegate from oil-rich Saudi Arabia will cite the stolen emails as justification for failing to act to control escalating carbon emissions. Make no mistake, I'm angry. In fact, I'm furious. Furious over the dishonest effort to smear me and my fellow climate scientists. But more than that, I'm furious that the attacks against me and other climate scientists serve such a cynical and selfish agenda by special interests to sabotage efforts to avert dangerous climate change. I see that as a direct assault, not just on us, but our children and grandchildren who stand the most to lose if we fail to act in time. Eugenie Scott, those scientists just did something unnatural. Tell a story, something emotional, something that they're trained not to do. Um, your, your response to that? Story. I don't agree. I'm sorry, Joe. You, you and I are kind of on opposite sides of this one. I know lots of scientists who are good communicators. Um, 
it, it tends to be the... There, there, there's a lot of, you know, there certainly are lots and lots of scientists who don't make the effort. But those aren't the ones that, that tend to get uh, identified. I mean, I totally, I'm totally on the same page with you that the best way to communicate is to tell a story. You've got to uh, repeat your message frequently, have it come from a trusted source, uh, have a message that assuages the concern of the person that you are trying to convince, and then then the science has a chance to be heard. And getting the science heard, I think, is what we're, what, what we're all about. And I totally agree that telling stories is a good thing, but I don't think it's that unnatural. After all, a lot of scientists are university professors, and they have to teach. They have to communicate with their students, and they can't all be doing a terrible job. But maybe that's because I'm from a different <laughs> science. <laughs> you haven't hung around my department. Speaking as a, speaking as a recovering science, a recovering college professor myself, I, I can. Uh, yeah. I, I, I would not like to paint as quite as grim a picture as as, as Joe is printing is painting. Um, we're not all awful. Uh, but I don't think those I that are, I don't think that's, that's what Joe think said. That's what I said. You, you made kind of a categorical complaint that scientists do this and that. And, and I think a whole lot of scientists do, but not all of them. But I think yeah. Joe's point was about how we're trained, that we're yeah. trained to think that we're not supposed to be emotional, never express how you feel. And once you've published something, that's it. It's done, and now you move on and do the new thing. And if you were to repeat the same thing over and over again, that would be considered bad. And I think that has stood in the way for a lot of people. I, I think it definitely did for me early in my career. It stands in the way of a certain kind of connection that you can make if you let yourself be emotional and you allow yourself to say the same thing more than once or publish the same story in a different way, which I've now done and which 10 years ago I would have thought was problematic. But don't forget there's a difference between what we do as scientists. Back when I really you know, was a card-carrying scientist rather than playing one on television, I would write articles about bones and teeth. All right? And they weren't terribly exciting, I have to admit. Um, but... When I, and I did exactly the same sort of thing that, that Joe was talking we, we talk about facts, we talk about observations, we talk about the conclusions that we draw, on, draw from our tested uh, hypotheses, et cetera, et cetera. But that didn't mean that I couldn't go down to the school board uh, in the town that I was living in and testify in favor of the teaching of evolution as a scientist. But it didn't have to do with the, you know, the fact-based presentation of my uh, information when I was publishing when I was communicating to other scientists. I think scientists are perfectly capable of communicating one way within a, uh, a scholarly tradition, which has to be that way, I mean, you know, by and large, but another way when they're dealing with the public. And I think we need, to, we need to kind of make scientists aware of that, that when you are communicating with the public, when you go on that talk show, when you go to that school board meeting or that uh, congressional hearing, that you, you tell the stories, you, um, you try to make that personal connection, just like you would if you were an accountant or a plumber or a ballet dancer. It's nothing that's specific to scientists. It's specific to people who want to get something accomplished. You have to talk in the language of the people that you're talking to. Neil Mierskis, uh, there is a premise out there, there's sort of this information deficit delusion. Some people think yeah. that if there's just one more paper, one more radio show, one more news article, that that will change people's minds. Is that, and is that really true? Or is that sort of, you know, gerbils spinning on a wheel, not going anywhere? <laughs> it's gerbils. <laughs> it's gerbils all the way down. Yeah, exactly. I was right? just about gerbils. to say that. I was made the pregnant pause. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, for me, that was one of the clearest uh, conclusions of the work that we did, yeah. was that so many people in the scientific community thought this was a problem of an information deficit, mm -hmm. that this was a problem of scientific literacy, and that if we just explained our work more clearly, had better graphs, um, mm -hmm. spoke perhaps in a little yeah. bit less jargony language, then people would understand and it would all work out it's very clear that that's not what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think part of why I felt the work we did was important was because we were trying to point out, you know, if you misdiagnose the problem, then your solution won't work. If you want to try to address a problem, you have to know what that problem is. And to understand that this is not a question of scientific illiteracy, mm -hmm. although there may be plenty of that, but, um, <laughs> but that this is about an organized campaign to undermine the work that we do and to make people think that the science is unsettled. And Mike really hit on this. 
Stealing emails isn't something that happens by accident. It, it um, doesn't happen to the people studying photosynthesis. Correct. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you can, Although it you, might if you, know, you can come up you, with something. You can like shovel that. lots of science on people if you're trying to teach them about photosynthesis. They basically don't have an, an emotional or an ideological opposition to photosynthesis. Right. And in fact, they do about climate change. Well, and in fact, that's kind of the proof of the pudding because it turns out it's not just climate scientists, as you know. It's not even just climate scientists and people who work on evolutionary biology. It's people who've worked on the history of lead paint. It's people who've worked on the history of tobacco. It's people who've worked on the history of vinyl chloride. It's people who've worked on endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Across the United States, we find these kinds of campaigns being targeted against scientists. And I think this is one of the most important things we need to understand because actually we have a lot of colleagues who are experiencing the same thing in totally different areas, um, but we don't talk to them very much because you know, we're organized by disciplines, yeah. and that's starting to change, and I think that's really important because it will help us to better understand what's really going on. Naomi Reski is a professor of history of science at Harvard. I'm Greg Dalton. You're listening to Climate One. Uh, Joe Rome, let's talk about the media coverage of this. How good of a job is the media doing in covering the, the climate debate? Maybe it's false debate. There's the balance bias. Um, has it shifted lately? Uh, is it doing a better job? Or are news organizations devoting fewer resources to this kind of work? Is this what we call softball? <laughs> um, How much time do you have? Yeah. Uh, 30 seconds. People who read Climate Progress know I have pretty strong feelings about... Uh, how bad the media has been. My parents were both journalists. Uh, my father was a, a newspaper editor for 30 years. Um, so, you know, journalism was uh, for the networks and others, it was something they did because uh, uh, of the public interest. And it was not something for a very long time when they had monopolies. Um, and the same for newspapers, which are basically monopolies. You provide the news. Um, and uh, the priority is accuracy and, and telling people what they ought to know and investigative reporting, which is expensive. Uh, and, you know, over time, it has shifted to being a business and uh, it had to make money. And, you know, when you have to make money, you're basically in the entertainment business. Uh, obviously, I think everyone in the room knows that uh, the great... Science reporters, you know, the great climate reporters have all lost their job. I mean, not all, but let's say 80% in the last five, six years. And, and um, you could talk to any one of the science disciplines, and all the science sections in the papers either disappeared or now they're science and health, and they're once a week, and they're buried somewhere. And so, no... But if science isn't where it at, it's at, then maybe that's okay. Well, the, you know, the thing is uh, that... We've had the emergence of the internet, of course, and I, you know, uh, now everybody's a journalist, and, and everyone has to become a journalist, and, and people can communicate directly and, and simply bypass the media. The media is called the media because it intermediates, and the fact is that, that uh, you know, scientists, I think, and, you know, to be clear on what I, I, I believe, I think scientists, you know, have gotten, uh, many scientists have gotten to be much better communicators in the last few years because they've had to. And, and the only way to really become good at anything is to do a lot of it. And, and communicating with the public is as much a skill that you have to study as anything else. Um, so I think that there's, you know, there's no point in pining for a lost era that is never going to come back. Um, and the post-World War II era, just very, very unique. Uh, if you personally believe that the media uh, or whatever, uh, other people, other groups are miscommunicating or doing a bad job of communicating, then you have a, jo a job to be a communicator. Now, I would say that, that historically the science communi uh, community has not rewarded communicators. They've been dismissed as popularizers. And Jared Diamond wrote a long essay uh, about this you can find online, and certainly many, many people have said the same. I think, by the way, that that has finally started to change. And, yeah, you know, the, the AAAS report this year, for instance, is an exceedingly good piece of communications and very, very blunt. Even the National Academy and Royal uh, Society wrote, co-wrote a paper. Uh, the IPCC is an unmitigated catastrophe. And, and <laughs> it, I, you know, a journalist... I'm going to uh, tweet that one. Uh, you know... <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing to me that in the year 2014, it, they can publish what they publish. And I've had you know, journalists 
say, well, they were just going to sit down with the summary for policymakers and figure it out. And it is, you know, do you know, you have to know what RCP 8.5 is. I mean, it's, it's un, it is unreadable. It is even for me, it's, it's virtually unreadable. And I will do my blog posts and people say, geez, I didn't see that. The part where the IPCC says that all of the warming since 1950 is, is due to human causes it. That's their best estimate. That's like buried halfway. That is like banner headline news. It is stunning when you tell people that our best estimate of how much warming is human caused in, since 1950 is 100% or more, because otherwise we'd be cooling. That stuns people. That's a headline. That would be, it's a headline for a blog. It, you, most people can't even find that in either the synthesis report or working group one. So you know, that's partly why I started uh, the blog. Since scientists haven't humanized themselves, it, that didn't necessarily matter in an era where nobody was, like in high school, telling bad stories about you. But the fact is, when there is an, a, a campaign, a, the equivalent of gossip and with the same level of, of factual basis, to trash you, um, if you don't stand up and, and not... You, you, don't, you can't beat that simply with the facts. You have to explain, no, of, you know, the fact that anybody could believe that scientists could be bought by <laughs> R&D, I mean, and that they went into this for venal purposes. And all I can tell you living in Washington, D.C., is that incredibly serious people, people who are well known to you by name, uh, firmly believe that that's true. Now, I won't say what kind of people they are. I will say they're probably the kind of people who could be influenced by money. But the fact is, people don't know scientists. And they, they have no concept that no scientist would ever risk their professional reputation coming out with a result that was not reproducible because it would ruin their reputation. Whereas, of course, in Washington, D.C., you can say crap that's totally false, make totally wrong predictions, and you'll be on year after year after year. You could even run for president. You could be Newt Gingrich and always be wrong and still almost you know, become number one in the process. So people have no concept of the scientific method and, 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 and how scientists operate. All they can do is A, hear endless stories of how corrupt and tainted they are, and nothing responding. No scientist saying, geez, why I became a scientist, my passion to learn, my passion to you know, get the, uh, understand nature. And then lo and behold, I find these things that the world needs to know about, and I start telling that. So anyway, it's just the situation isn't changing and improving, but it's got to go a lot faster. Joe Rome is founding editor of the Climate Progress blog. You're listening to Climate One. You can follow us on Twitter at Climate One. Naomi Reskies, there's a refrain heard frequently these days, I'm not a scientist. What is that link? And I think I'm the only one up here without a PhD, so I'm the dummy up here. So to explain for us what that line does and the effect and the intent of that line. Well, it's yet another variation on the theme of denial because it's basically saying, I don't know. It's another form of doubt-mongering. And I don't have to know. The implication is, I don't, I'm not, I don't know. Is there climate change? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. So it's just another way of perpetuating the doubt-mongering uh, strategy that's been going on for a long time. I just wanted to respond to one thing that... that um, well, actually, I wanted to respond to a lot of things that Joe said, <laughs> but I'll just respond to one uh, since time is short. Um, so I'm a historian of science, and one of the things that I notice a lot of times people will use the word history to refer to the last 30 years. But history <laughs> is a little bit older than that. And one of the things that we know is that scientists haven't always behaved the way they behave now, and they haven't always assumed the things that we sometimes assume about how we have to speak or, the, or what our relationship would, should be with publics. And one of the things that I have studied myself in my own work is that in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a great tradition of scientists, particularly Earth scientists, of reaching out to the public. In the mid-19th century, the British Association would have public meetings in which thousands and thousands of ordinary mm -hmm. British citizens would come to hear lectures on geology. Mm -hmm. In the late 19th century, in London, at the Royal Institution, thousands of people would come to hear Michael Faraday lecture on electricity and magnetism. And in the early 20th century, it was extremely common for American geologists and other scientists to write popular books. 
And nobody thought that they weren't good scientists. One of my favorite examples is William Bowie, for whom we have a Bowie Medal and a Bowie Lecture here at the American Geophysical Union. And he was the head of the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey, so he was a geodesist. That's a word most people don't even know what it means. Uh, For those of us who know what geodesy is, it's the science of studying the shape of the Earth. Uh, It's a pretty technical field. It's not the kind of thing that most of us would think would lend itself to popular presentations. William Bower used to do a Sunday radio program on geodesy. (laughs) Now, if you can make geodesy fun, you can make anything fun. (laughs) So that just shows that we make certain assumptions about what's possible and not possible that are actually wrong. And I think we need to broaden our own perception about what it is we do and what's possible and to realize that just because it's been a certain way for the last 10 or 20 or 30 years doesn't mean it has to be that way. Mm -hmm. And we can still be great scientists, but we can talk to the public too. Can you be a great scientist and also social activist? Naomi Oreskes, you went to the climate march. Some people think that some scientists have crossed the line into activism and that that jeopardizes their science. Well, anyone who thinks that has never thought about Albert Einstein (laughs) or Niels Bohr. I mean, some of the greatest scientists of the 20th century became very active after 1945 in speaking out in public about the threat that nuclear weapons represented to the future of mankind. And I don't think anybody ever said that Albert Einstein's theory of relativity lost credibility because he spoke up about the dangers of atomic (laughs) weapons. Thank you. (laughs) But it raises the bar. It raises the bar. If you are going to be speaking out about your professional specialty, that means you have to be excruciatingly honest about when am I speaking with my scientist hat on? You know, here's the empirical evidence, here are the tested theories, et cetera, et cetera. This is what I think we should do about them, wearing my citizen hat. And it's very, very... And you do this not just because it's the right and ethical thing to do, but you do it because it's more effective. Because if the public is perceiving that you are shading your information, you're shading your scientific research in any manner that, uh, to, to support your, your policy objectives, shall we say, that's when you lose credibility. And Joe Rome, you write about the, the messenger credibility has a lot to do with confidence, who they are, the myths. You know, bring that to science in terms of the way scientists always talk, of, well, we don't know this, we don't know that, versus the, 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 the good guys, the strong people always have certainty and a certain swagger. Yeah, well, I think that it, it is certainly the case that if you study, you know, communications theory and social science, um, the hero in stories is not a guy who goes around saying probably and has a, <laughs> and has a lot of, you know, hedge, Hamlet. hedges. I mean, you know, it's your Luke yeah. Skywalker and it's your your, your uh, Harry Potter and all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the hero doesn't have parents, but that's a separate thing. They, you know, that, that, there's a different reason for that. But I think, you know, the point is that, that uh, whereas the bad guy is the calculating guy, and, and if you read the book, you know, what Shakespeare does in, 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 in some of his plays is, is, very, is very clear about that. You know, I think that, um, uh, you know, just to echo Naomi about, about history, you can think of a guy like Linus Pauling, you know, who obviously one of the great scientists of, of last century, but also a guy who, who devoted a lot of effort to the whole, uh, you know, uh, 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 nuclear testing issue. Um, it's always valuable to step back and just look objectively. It is very weird situation that uh, somebody can be an expert diagnostician and not be expected to offer any treatment at all. I mean, it's, it, you, you certainly in your medical profession, you know, if you thought it was wildly inappropriate for your doctor to tell you what was wrong with you and then how to cure it, it would be crazy. Nobody would think that in a million years. And in fact, your doctor would be totally vilified if he withheld anything. And, of course, you know, doctors speak in probabilities. They don't know the future any with, with certainty. They can't even tell if you smoke two packs a day that you're going to get uh, uh, sick from it. You could live to be 100. It's just that statistically it's a really, really bad idea. And, um, and it's the same thing. You know, they can say, you know, if you keep doing this, you'll develop a cough. 
You know, and then 10 years later, you did it. You developed the cough. You come to them, and they say, well, now you have early-stage emphysema. And if you stop smoking now, it won't get worse. But here's the progression if you do. That's expected. And, and whereas it is, it is a very bizarre world where the people who know the most, the expert diagnosticians for the climate problem, are somehow supposed to be forbidden from, from talking about the treatment. It's, it's a very perverse world where that's the case. Naomi Oreskes? Yeah, I think this is a, an issue in which we could have a little bit more subtlety and nuance. And I think that the issue is not science versus policy, because I think that's a bit of a false dichotomy. It's about what I call proximate expertise. What is the thing that you really know about as an expert? And so my model on this is Sherry Rowland. When Sherry Rowland spoke out about the ozone hole and the threat that chlorinated fluorocarbons presented to the health and well-being of plants and animals and people on this earth, there were colleagues who criticized him and who said he's crossing the line that Eugenie just drew. He's moving into policy. But Sherry's view was, well, wait a second. I'm the expert. I, because of my knowledge as an expert, I understand the threat that these things represent. And the fact is, if it hadn't been for people like Sherry Rowland and Mario Molina and Paul Crutzen, we wouldn't have even known there was ozone depletion. We would be seeing increasing rates of skin cancer, and we'd all be wondering why. And we'd be arguing about whether it was just better diagnosis, right? (laughs) You know, That's where we would be today. But Sherry spoke up, and he didn't just say CFCs destroy ozone. He said, and here's why it matters, because people will die. And that's a pretty important thing for you to say. And he said, and therefore, because we know the cause... The cause is a group of chemicals that we could actually live without. We should do something about that cause. And that might be viewed as overstepping into policy, but the point is is that the cause was directly related to what he understood as an expert. And I think it's crucial for scientists to make those connections. Let's pick up on religious views. What percentage, how much of denial of climate science, climate change in America is religious-based, Eugenie Scott? Tiny percent. But tiny, d- tiny percent. So, but doesn't it challenge, how, how much of it is ideological, that, that the Huge. solutions challenge <laughs> a worldview? Okay, ideology is a big tent. Uh, there are religious ideologies, there are political ideologies, there are economic ideologies, and if you look at the two controversial issues that I'm most familiar with, which is evolution and climate change, uh, clearly religious ideology is the motivator for anti-evolutionism. Straight up, no question. But climate change is much more complicated than that. The major motivators for people objecting to their kids being taught climate change in school are political ideologies and economic ideologies. The the idea that if you teach climate change, then uh, climate change is is really a liberal hoax that is uh, a socialist plot to do away with capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and down this downhill from there. There's a tiny little (laughs) slice of the uh, anti-climate change movement that is based in conservative Christian theology. Uh, It's a providential theology, the idea that that God would never do anything bad to the planet because he created it for us and so forth. But when when you weigh that that slice of of the anti-climate change people against the the much, much larger uh, proportion of anti-climate change uh, uh, individuals who come from a political or economic ideology, uh, it it really makes the religious ideology very small. So, you know, I I deal with this a lot because people assume that the anti-evolutionists and the anti-climate change people are the same folks. And there's an overlap but by and large, the anti-climate change people are uh, stressing a political and economic ideology. The anti-evolution people stressing a religious ideology. Naomi Oreskes, you went to the Vatican and talked to the Pope about climate change. Tell us about that encounter and conversation. Yeah, it was a great experience, and I think it supports what Eugenie says. I mean, religion is a very big tent, mm-hmm. but there are many religious leaders who totally accept oh, that no. climate change, it is a religious issue, but it's a religious issue in terms of issues like social justice, and care of the poor. And so... And that's the um, pro side, as opposed to the anti side. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think all of us who are at the Vatican, we were very moved by the experience, and we're hoping uh, that the Pope will make a powerful statement on this issue. Joe Rome, you recently, uh, your blog recently wrote about Catholic bishops uh, 
a pretty strong statement uh, about about climate change, really calling for a, a, a new economic order. Uh, and you believe that that the climate needs to be in a moral frame. Why is that? Well, I think um, if I'm the public, how am I going to decide how big a deal this issue is? Mm-hmm. So you have scientists and some others saying this is really serious, and if you don't act, big big trouble. But for me to believe that, um, it's a very odd situation for, let's say, even a scientist to come out and uh, analytically state we're headed towards a future which is catastrophic and not comment on the immorality of it. I mean, it is, it is, in fact, I would argue that that actually undermines their credibility because any any rational and moral person seeing where we're headed would, would simply, um, they, well, their hair would be on fire and they'd end up like me. Uh, and, my chair. Yeah. you know, I, I think, I, I also add to that that, you know, the great social movements generally are built around uh, the moral aspect of the cause. And I, I you know, there's, there's something I, I uh, have written about. Let me see if I can actually uh, uh, get this to work. Uh, the founding fathers thought the moral issue, the, the particular moral issue involved was so obvious that they didn't actually spend a lot of time talking about it. And I, I talk about uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson um, who, who wrote in a letter to Madison, what's considered the definitive statement by the Founding Fathers um, about intergenerational ethics. And for him, it was the question for Jefferson was very simple. Uh, does, do later generations have to consider the preceding generation as having had a right to eat up the whole soil of their country in the course of a life? Mm-hmm. Uh, soil was an obvious focal point because he, you know, he, was, he was a farmer. And so the question is, you own the property. Do you have the right to render that property unerable so that you simply cannot grow crops on it? That was a self-evident truth. Uh, and he says, everyone will say no, that the soil is the gift of God to the living as much as it had been to the deceased generation. I, it, it's simply immoral for the next generation to, to seize as property the, the sustainable nature on which we, we build the planet. For him, it was soil, but now, obviously, it's the climate and water and fisheries and all that. And, and obviously, as I have written and many others have written, the threat to the soil is among the greatest threats that climate poses, the, the, the dust bowlification, the desertification. So, um, you know, when you look at the great moral crusades, it is all about truly making the words of the Declaration of Independence or whatever uh, you live by, everybody is treated equally, reciprocity, whatever you want to define your, your moral code. And um, it, bot- it comes down to everyone should be treated equally the way you would like to be treated. And we're ex- we try to do that on the basis of ethnicity, you know, and, and there's been advances for you know, women's suffrage and the women's movement and the LGBT community. But the great remaining disenfranchised group is children and future generations. And we are simply taking their future from them in a last gasp, gasp to live unsustainably for a couple of decades and hope après nous les deluge. And it is staggeringly immoral what uh, future generations will, you know, no one's going to call us the greatest generation if we allow four degrees centigrade, seven degrees Fahrenheit to happen. So, yeah, I think, I think for someone to under, who understands what is happening to not speak at some moral level, it, it creates such a disconnect for the public. The public uh, is going to look at this and say, geez, the media doesn't talk about this, politicians don't talk about it, even when scientists talk about it, it's not, they don't, their emotions don't connect with the, with the reality of the situation. So yeah, you're all human beings, and I, I think you have to appear as a coherent human being, or else the, the liars who study how to look 
like a coherent human being, we'll, we'll simply win the day. Joe Rome is founding editor of Climate Progress. We're talking about science and climate change here today, Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our other guests are Eugenie Scott, chair of the National Center for Science Education, and Naomi Oreski is a professor of history of science at Harvard. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. Thank you. Um, with Citizens Climate Lobby, and I want to ask all of you, especially Naomi Oreskes, about to follow up on what you said and Joe reinforced on the necessity for the climate science community to actually wade into the policy area. Last year, we were here with uh, Lord Stern, and it's so clear that we need to put a price on carbon emissions. So could, is it possible to get the scientific community to study this, agree on it, and make some recommendations based on their credibility? Naomi Oreskes, there are lots of recommendations out there. Well, yeah, there are. And I do think you have to be a little careful about this because a lot of climate scientists are not experts on social policy or monetary policy or taxation policy. And I've heard some very reputable scientists say Mm -hmm. some things that were empirically incorrect about taxation and policy instruments. So I don't think what we want is for climate scientists to be necessarily making bold pronouncements about policy But I think what we do need is for climate scientists to be reminding the public that we do know what causes climate change. And this is my big beef with the IPCC, is that that they're not clear about the causal issues. Because let's say we know climate change is happening, but we don't know what's causing it. We still shrug our shoulders. But if we know it's causing it, then we have to focus on the causes. And if we know that the causes are greenhouse gases and deforestation, then that's what we have to focus on. And what the right policy instruments are I do think there are other people who are probably better to speak to that than we are, Um, but I do think that that message is a super important one that has still not really got out clearly to lots and lots of people in this country. And speaking of social scientists, pretty much every economist supports a carbon tax program. And we can defer to their expertise on that issue. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously every scientist has to come to their own comfort level. If you plan to speak in the public about climate, it's incumbent on you to be able to answer the hard questions. They're all answered in skeptical science, so on the science side. You know, how far are you prepared to go on the solution? You know, you can start with doing nothing is unacceptable. So that, that op, you know, and then you can go from there. And the, the IPCC has whole report on things you can do and how fast you have to do them. And, and I, everybody should at least try to understand. Every scientist who could read the IPCC report should at least understand them because you can go quite far there. We know you've got to leave most of the fossil fuels in the ground. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's entered the realm of settled fact almost as much as you know, the National Academy said you know, the fact that we're warming or the use of the word unequivocal. So I think that, that obviously a person's going to spend most of their time talking about their area of expertise. I just don't think that you can omit the things that logically follow, which is, what do we have to do and how fast do we have to do it? Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Carter Brooks, uh, artist and philosopher of climate art. So in the conversation of denial, um, a lot of the focus is on the oil companies and other people sort of funding this campaign of denial. We tend to blame a lot of the denial on that. But I want to suggest that much of the denial is completely natural, right? What we understand from climate change completely understands we live in a different earth than we learned about growing up. So um, my question is, do we have a danger in overemphasizing how it's being funded and fueled and not recognizing what's natural about the denial in a personal, individual level, but also I think we're seeing it collectively. So Naomi Oreskes, we've interviewed a number of people here who say that the human evolutionary brain is not well-suited to recognize this threat and not yeah. all doubt is manufactured. We're not well, wired. We're wired for tigers in the bushes. We're not wired for yeah. gases that we can't smell, touch, taste, or see. I hate that argument. <laughs> I just hate it. I just think it's just such an excuse, you know? Okay. Yeah, it's true. It is true. We have evidence to say that we react more to immediate threats than long-term threats. But you know what? Most people save for their retirement. Lots of people save money for college. People plant trees in Israel for the next generation. I mean, we also do a lot of things that involve long-term planning. We endow universities, and we build orchestras, and we build the interstate highway system. So, yes, it's true we respond more to short-term than long-term threats, but it's also true that we have a tremendous capacity to look ahead and to build things for the future. So I think that's kind of an excuse. I don't buy it. And as far as, you know, the, the two sides of denial, 
I do agree that, that, there, that there are two sides. There's what I call the supply and then there's the demand. <laughs> you know, we wrote a book that was about the supply side. We wrote a book about people who supply doubt. And we wrote that book because that was the story that we stumbled on. We found this trove of documents and it involved issues that we understood and knew as historians of science. And so we wrote the story that was in front of us, you know? There is another story to be told about the demand side, about why people buy into it. A lot of it has to do with ideology. A lot of it is rooted in American culture. I mean, well, I'm not supposed to say today or tomorrow, but I've spoken in many occasions about, um, you know, these sort of deep roots in American culture that believe that the government that governs best governs least. Mm -hmm. And I think that climate denial plays into that because it plays into people's kind of worry that the government, mm -hmm. it will just be obtrusive. They won't really solve the climate change. They'll just build more bureaucracies. You know, and that's a legitimate concern. It's not infringe crazy. Infringe upon our freedoms and And so impinge forth. on personal freedoms, right. None of those are crazy concerns. They get used in counterproductive and unhelpful ways. But so yes, ways there's, that really resonate with the public. Right, so there's definitely... Because those are important values. Right, there's a demand story to be told. So the fact that we wrote a book about the supply doesn't disparage that, yes, there are also important things to be said about demand. And I, let me just add, you know, I, I think that the, the, the notion that humans can't think uh, proactively and long-term is, is poppycock from another notion, particularly now that I'm a father. I mean, once you become a father uh, or mother, all you think about is the future. I mean, and, you know, obviously humans were designed because of, you know, the difficulties of getting the, the large brain outside of, you know, the, the female human body uh, <laughs> relatively intact. It's an 18-year... It's not that terrible, I'll tell you. <laughs> it, well, a lot of us enjoyed it. If, but if, if humans developed as smart as they are and as big a brain as they, uh, as they have, but it only took two years to reach adulthood, it would be a lot tougher for you. Sure. So it's Fair 18 enough. years for a reason. It's evolution. And evolutionary, we are designed to think really hard about we're going to have to provide for this kid for 18 years, and, and frankly, we're going to have to be on that. And that's why I bring up the intergenerational ethics. The fact is every single family, uh, everybody is somebody's kid or vice versa, and, and, and everybody understands that, that indeed what it means to be human is to think about the next generation. And it's only this weird economic system that we've developed, which is so perverse that it drives short-term incentives that actually destroy the ability to think intergenerationally that, that really has upended our morality. We're talking about climate science at Climate One. Next question. Uh, I'm Felix Kramer. I have a lot of conversations about climate change, and I'm amazed how often this, the question is asked, do you believe in climate change? And I never answer that question. I always say something like, I accept the science of climate change, and I push back, and I wonder how you folks respond to that. And, and how do you talk to skeptics and deniers? I, I, I cut my teeth on evolution as a controversial issue. You'd be surprised how many times people say, do you believe in evolution? And I say, no. <laughs> and speaking of telling stories and causing emotional reactions in people that definitely gets their opinion and that you wait a beat and then you say I accept it because it's the best scientific explanation we have and that's what you should do with climate so for me it's about figuring out if they're kind of in what I would call the malleable middle if, they're, if there's some open mindedness and usually I'll let them ask me a question because often they, ha they do have a question and then that gives you a sense where they're coming from and you know, how you might begin to answer. Right, address questions. money or faith or yeah. whatever. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Yes, my name is Peter Schweikart. I'm a uh, physical geographer. Uh, I, I, f I find this question of how there's a, this disconnect, of course, between public perception and, uh, well, what I think of is very, very persuasive science. Um, but I also find an interesting disconnect between the United States and other developed countries in the world in the way that this how persistent, how important um, this disconnect is. Uh, it's hard for me to think of other ways in which the U.S. society differs sufficiently from these other countries, perhaps politically, but I'd be interested in some of your views if you've thought about that question. Yeah. Okay, real I mean, briefly, yes, Naomi. I can totally answer that, and I hope you'll read Merchants of Doubt, because in a way that is what our story is all about. It's about the role of free market ideology in the United States, 
And that is different in Europe. In Europe, you can't discredit someone just by calling them a socialist. In Europe, people accept that the government has an important you know, role to play in a mixed economy. So these arguments that have had such resonance in the United States, that have been taken up by the Wall Street Journal uh, and Fox News, they just don't have the same traction in Europe. And I think if you, you know, the clearest example of that is read the Financial Times. Even though it's very conservative and very business-oriented, you will not see anything like the kind of nonsense in the Financial Times that you see in the Wall Street Journal. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. You people have much better access to the people in Washington, such as, let's say, Inhofe or uh, Cruz and all the deniers. Are they simply venal, or do they really believe what they are saying, from your point of view? Joe, you probably have lunch with those guys. Can you? Uh, <laughs> 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 I did go to a dinner once with those guys, uh, and um, uh, just to see. They, if you're asking whether they're sincere, there's a lot of them. Who, yeah. who are sincere. I mean, I, I don't think, what, you know, in, t- in terms of the demand side of denial, one should never underestimate the power of, of confirmation bias. And, and it really, it's how all of us get through the inundation of information that, we, that we're given. Everybody has to have shortcuts for what they believe and what they don't believe. No one could possibly process one-tenth of one percent of the information you're thrown at. So, yes, you know, it, it is whether you want to call tribal or whatever. Are there people who know that they are lying? There's no question about it, because you can tell they simply know the literature too well, and their rebuttals are simply too knowledgeable. Uh, there of co- tend to be people who are professionals and paid a lot of money. But the vast majority of people, people you will meet in the street, they'll run the denial talking points, because they've heard them somewhere, but they're not... They're not, you know, venal in the least bit. They have been presented a coherent story yes. that fits their worldview and supports the end state that they want. And anybody's going to adopt a, a... If you can't live with the, with the uh, treatment, you know, you are, you're going to be far more likely to deny the disease. And I don't think there's any escape from that. And, and all I can say is the, the people who... Spread the who developed the disinformation campaign and spread it has spent a lot of time. You know, when you say the tobacco industry, one of the great marketing geniuses of of the last century to be able to make so much money selling a product that kills its customers at such a high rate. I mean, it's it is a marketing triumph, and and marketing was one of the fields that Americans, you know, ask what, what's special about America. We, in many senses, developed marketing as, as a science. So, you know, I, I think one has to be sympathetic, absolutely. To, and that's why, by the way, Naomi's work is so important, because if you're trying to explain to somebody why so much of what they've been told is wrong, you have to offer them a story that makes sense. Nobody's going to believe that so many people could, could be lying nonstop about an issue of such moral consequence. It is very, very hard to believe. So, you know, Noam has done a very good job of providing the actual coherent story. And, and it is, happens to have the you know, benefit of being true. And I'm not <laughs> ever been one to recommend using rhetoric for bad purposes. But, you know, Plato himself didn't like rhetoric for the very reason that, you know, in the dialogue Gorgias, Gorgias, the great Greek rhetorician, says, I could go into any town in Greece, me and a real doctor, and we would debate in front of the town elders who should be the town doctor, and I would always win. So that the doctor was the scientist of the day, and he would, but he would be named. So the, the point is that there was always a dark side of rhetoric. And, and all the rhetoricians knew it. It's partly why, they have it, why rhetorician has such a bad reputation. But the point is, just because it can be abused doesn't mean that if you actually combine it with the truth, you don't become a more powerful and persuasive speaker. You do. 
We have to end it there. That's Joe Rome, founding editor of Climate Progress and author of Language Intelligence, Lessons of, on Persuasion from Jesus, Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Lady Gaga. Also joining us today at Climate One have been Eugenie Scott, chair of the National Center for Science Education, and Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard and co-author of Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco to Global Warming. You can listen to this and other podcasts in Climate One in the iTunes store. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming and listening today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.